Welcome to BSD Talk number 250. It's Saturday, January 31, 2015. What follows is another talk from Meet BSD California 2014. So here it is. Uh, good morning. Um, I, uh, so we were, uh, we were pretty excited about being invited to come talk about uh, how WhatsApp is uh, uh, using FreeBSD. Um, uh, show of hands, any WhatsApp users? I won't, I won't be offended if there aren't many because this is the U.S. and we're not huge, not huge in the U.S. Um, so, uh, so it seemed like a good idea to come and talk about you know, uh, the great success we've had with FreeBSD. And then I got a little less excited when I actually started thinking about what I was going to talk about. Uh, every year I, uh, I do a talk at the uh, Erlang factory, which is the language we use. Uh, and oh sure, all right, a double wire here. Um, and we uh, and I always struggle to fit enough uh, to have enough time to talk about all the different things that we have to do to Erlang to uh, to actually scale and uh, allow us to do what we do, um, and. The bottom line with FreeBSD is that um, we don't have to do much. Uh, you know, you're going around the room, uh, hearing you know everybody's comments about uh, why they love FreeBSD. Those are all those all resonate with us. And uh, and what I said was was really true. Um, you know, with the size of the team we have, so there's a dozen of us on the server team. Uh, I don't think there's any other platform that we could have at that level. At, at the OS level, that would enable us to to scale to the way we have with the with the staff that we have, because we just don't we don't really have to worry about uh, what's going on with the OS, and, and we can focus all our time at, at higher levels. Uh, and so, you think I learned my lesson about titling these things? Every time I title something uh, that has a number in it or or something like that, it means something different by the time I actually give the talk. Um, if you if if you happen to look at uh, this year's uh, uh, Erlang Factory talk, you'll see what I mean about that one. But anyway, so we're, we're past 600 million users now, um, unsuspecting because, uh, well, so how many before coming today knew that WhatsApp used FreeBSD? Okay, <laughs> most people. Um, a, lot, a lot more was made uh, of, the, of the Erlang thing when the, when the deal was announced than, than anything else, but uh, so... Uh, I've, put, I've put together some some topics to talk about. This is in, in any particular order. Uh, and if at the end of the talk you say, "Wow, what's the point he's trying to make?" Well, uh, the, 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 like I said, the underlying uh, thing here is that uh, FreeBSD has just been fantastic for us, and we haven't had to do much. We don't need much. It just works. And uh, so I'll just give you some some history of of how it came to the company. Uh, some statistics that might be interesting, talk about a little bit about our architecture and some of the wins and challenges along the way. So uh, I've been at WhatsApp uh, for three years, or three, about three and a half years. Uh, 
like I said, we have a small team, so we, we all pretty much do a lot of everything. Um, but I focus a lot on uh, performance and scalability. I uh, do a lot with our multimedia system, which we use to transfer pictures, audio files, video files between users on their phones. Um, a little bit of security. We all do our own operations. We don't have a dedicated operations team. And like I said, we all, we all sort of pitch in on, on everything. Uh, I spent 12 years at Yahoo before uh, WhatsApp. Um, I was on the platform engineering team there, and uh, as you can see, I, uh, my first my first exposure to FreeBSD was was at Yahoo in '99 on, on 228, uh, and I spent probably the first five or six years really doing a lot with the OS. Um, you know, I, I wrote a, a kernel module that we used there, and um, so I was I, I was kind of the point person in terms of uh, doing the interface layer between the the platform libraries and the OS. Um, before Yahoo, I was at Silicon Graphics, did some work on uh, video serving there, and then before that, a couple other companies. So uh, jumping right into sort of the history of FreeBSD and WhatsApp, uh, so, the, so the decision to use FreeBSD obviously predates me. Uh, this was, goes back to the be beginnings of the company with Jan and Brian. Both, uh, both of them are uh, old school Yahoo folks, so they both had a lot of experience with, with FreeBSD there. And how well it's how well it worked for a large scale global internet service. But um, I, I asked John a little bit about you know what you know what specifically was going through his mind you know starting a uh, starting a new venture you know ten or fifteen years later, which would still uh, make the decision to to use FreeBSD at that point. And he was thinking in terms of well, this is a messaging service. It's going to be a lot about networking, and the thing that stood out to him was just the the quality and the performance of the TCP stack. Um, you know how stable it was, uh, and just being able to scale, knowing that the the OS would scale with what hope what he hoped would be a large scale service. I don't know if at that time he th he thought it would be as successful as we are so quickly, but. Um, but again, you know, going back to the, the the days of Yahoo, and knowing that uh, this is this is an OS that you can count on. It's it's predictable. Uh, the releases are predictable. The documentation's great. Uh, and then just knowing the sort of the internals are going to be there when we need them. Uh, so here's a super crappy picture of our architecture um, that I stole from my other talk because uh, I'm just terrible at drawing pictures. Uh, basically, we have you know we have our Hundreds of millions of users on their on their uh, smartphones out uh, somewhere on the internet on the globe. Uh, we have two main front ends. Uh, there's the the chat machines, which are our main connection point for the phones. Those are uh, those are uh, like I said. Those are the primary connection point. Uh, that's where all the text messaging goes. That's where all sort of the metadata, as far as group memberships and profile pictures and all those uh, kinds of things are are transferred through. Um, on the back end, we have a whole list of back end services um, that are in separate clusters that uh, <clears throat> uh, keep our account data, keep our push tokens, uh, group membership, profile pictures, as I mentioned, and things of those nature. Uh, and then up there, the offline storage, it's, it's, not, it's not offline storage, it's, our off, it's storage for our offline stuff. But basically, we only keep data while it's in transit between a sender and a receiver. So if I send a message to somebody and they're not currently connected, then that 
that message or that picture or whatever needs to be stored until their phone is connected. Uh, and so for the text portion, there we have those offline storage servers which, which capture that, uh, that text while, while it's being stored before the, before the other phones connect. The other major piece is the uh, multimedia system, again, which is uh, stores the pictures and the sound files and the uh, video files while they're in transit. Um, the protocols here, uh, it's TCP in both cases. Uh, the chat connection is a proprietary encrypted protocol that we've optimized down as much as we can just to limit the amount of uh, bandwidth and to uh, increase the, uh, or, or lower the latency of the, the connection process so people don't have to wait a long time for, uh, to get their messages when they get a push notification. Uh, the MMS part is HTTPS. Uh, so a few numbers about uh, where we are. Like I said, we're, uh, we're over 600 million monthly users now. Uh, at any given time, or we peak at about 140 million concurrent connections uh, across the uh, across the cluster. Um, that that sort of rises and falls. This this number is actually about the same that it was uh, back at the beginning of the year. Last time I, I, I gave a talk on this, uh, even though our user count has gone up substantially, uh, we we play with the length of time that phones stay connected to the to the systems um, to optimize how often we think they'll be connected when we, they, they get a message or to preserve battery life or to improve latency. Uh, there, there's different factors there that, that make it more or less beneficial for the phone to stay connected shorter or longer period of time. So right now we're actually, the phones are staying connected for a shorter period of time than they were at the beginning of the year. So we have a, a lower con uh, uh, concurrent connection count as a percentage of the total users. Uh, so phones are connecting to us at a rate, a peak rate of about 440,000 connections a second, um, and we peak at about 100 or 1.1 million messages being sent in by users to other recipients. And the and the, mess, the outbound message count is going to be higher than that because of uh, fan out for groups, uh, but but the inbound is about that. And we've just crossed uh, a threshold where we're <clears throat> where our users are sending uh, over a billion pictures uh, every day. Uh, and, you know, I, I spent a long time at Yahoo, which is obviously a large global internet service, but I, it's still hard for me to, uh, to, get my, to, to wrap my mind around the numbers that, that, that we deal with in terms of uh, what goes on at, at WhatsApp. Uh, you know, when I think about a billion pictures and try to imagine what, what that, you know, how many different pictures that is, or the million messages per second, you can imagine the million messages and then imagine that there's there's one of those million chunks going every second somewhere around the globe. Um, it's, it's, it's truly mind-blowing. Uh, so, we, so we have a fairly small cluster um, for, the, for the size of uh, our user base. Um, and I think, and then I'll get in more detail here, but I mean, this is one of the places where I think that FreeBSD has really helped us to keep, our, to keep the size of our hardware footprint down. Um, obviously, from a cost perspective, it's it's important, but even more important, uh, just sort of operate our, our operational complexity goes up as the size of our cluster goes up. Uh, and again, we're a small team, so uh, to the extent that we can keep our our server count down, that helps us keep things running smoothly uh, with a small staff. So you can see that the the front ends dominate the uh, 
the, the server count. Uh, we've got 200 of those those chat front ends that do the text and most of the metadata, and then about 350 on the on the multimedia side. Uh, and that that's the the multimedia has really been growing rapidly ever since. I so there was an initial version um, that was available even when I joined. Uh, and uh, we re we recognized that that media would be an important uh, part of the of the the whole equation. So uh, we wrote the, rewrote that in uh, 2012. And when we first launched that, we had about 16 of these servers. So you can see that um, you know obviously our user count's gone up substantially, but the but the but the demand for the multimedia stuff is is gone up even more rapidly than that. Uh, so I pulled a couple graphs of just kind of our utilization across the cluster. So this was this is looking at one or maybe uh, two or three servers of each type across the cluster. So the ones, and this is CPU utilization, so as a, as a percentage, um, basically user plus system plus interrupt. Uh, and the, the ones at the top there are our chat front ends. So those are the ones that we run the hottest because we those are predictable. We have a large number of them. Uh, we know how the load goes up and down uh, based on uh, what what our user activity looks like. Uh, and as you can see, we're so we we would like to keep those closer to about fifty percent peak so that we have a lot of headroom for world events or uh, things of that nature. Um, so you can see that we're a little behind on in capacity expansion right at this moment. For those, um, a lot of the database, um, the database-like nodes, those backend systems, are the ones that are running down in the sort of the 15% range, and then, but but some of them that that take a lot more traffic, like our, our presence system, which keeps track of you know typing events, available, non-available, things of those nature. Those those are those are getting a lot of events. So I mentioned that uh, so we do a hundred 1.1 million messages in a second at peak. Uh, the, the total number of messages being exchanged with the phones, when you include things like presence and last scene and stuff like that, is more. It's probably closer to three million a second. So, um, so there's a lot of activity going on in the in the back end. Uh, so, uh, one of the themes that I'll get to in a minute is uh, the ability to use large RAM. So you can see we've got some systems that uh, that are using close to 400 gig per system. It's across the cluster. <clears throat> so the bottom line on FreeBSD is that uh, for us, performance has just been outstanding. So especially on uh, SMP. So as I mentioned, it's important to us to keep our server count down, which means that we want to build really large servers. Obviously, we could. Well, not obviously, but in theory, we could have built the same service with a lot, of, a, a much larger number of smaller servers, but. Um, there's there's aspects of this sort of the Erlang architecture that would make that more difficult, but the bottom line is because we have had experienced such great scaling on the SMP side, uh, it's it's allowed us to to really just kind of scale and not have to worry too much about uh, dealing with some of the other aspects of having a large node count. So the kernel has been uh, for for most part pretty free of contention once we did a little bit of tuning uh, the, the the OS itself really doesn't get in the way 
Erlang itself has been great. Uh, it has been a great choice for this particular application um, because of the uh, sort of the actor model, where each phone can have its own lightweight process. And, and, and uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with Erlang, uh, so the programming model is you have lots of these little very lightweight processes. You know, they they can use um, I think about let's see two. About 1,600 bytes of storage, and then just a, a very small uh, control block, and so they're very easy. To, they're they're very quick to schedule. They're very quick to uh, birth and die, and there's no uh, for for the most part there's no shared state. So any sort of interaction in the system is all message passing, uh, and the Erlang virtual machine Beam is very SMP aware. So it's very good at Doing this message passing between all these procs uh, in a way that that minimizes the contention as as much as possible, and so it allows us to put you know millions of connections on a node and not not run into a lot of uh, contention that limits the amount of scaling that we can do. Um, for example, so last week I decided so to just to just capture some graphs in terms of what happens when we when we really crank up the load on a, on a server. So this is one of these front-end chat nodes. Uh, so I, I doubled the load on it. Um, and you can see as the traffic ramps up, the, uh, the CPU utilization starts out about 55% there or, or so. and kind of smoothly gets up there around uh, 98%, 99% and runs. And, they, and the remarkable thing is that, especially for these chat nodes, that we can run them all day at that level and they, and they, and they work. Like, we don't, uh, typically the way we monitor our systems, because this is a message passing system, uh, when things stop working well, our, the, the, the primary indication is that uh, process somewhere will stop draining its message queue as fast as it's being, uh, as, as things are being enqueued. So, so we're looking for backlog, basically. We're looking for backlog on a message queue, on a process somewhere. Uh, and the remarkable thing about the, the, the way we've got the system tuned now and how it can scale on these, on these boxes is that uh, we can run them at this load and you know you get little little blips of you know a thousand messages here or there, but but the system will just keep running. And in fact, there was a time I think it was last year where we got a little behind. We we weren't really watching capacity closely on the on the chat machines until one day we started getting thermal alarms on the on the nodes because they had been running at like ninety five percent for twenty four hours, and so. The systems themselves, and then they were in one use at that point, and it was they were they had really little, really small margin for cooling, and uh, so we, we started overheating the boxes because they would just run and run and run um, successfully, and we didn't really know that we were running that hot. Here's the here's the connection count. So it starts at about six, six, starts at about six twenty five, uh, get it up to about one point two million. Now, back when we did our first round of optimization on this system uh, back in 2011, we actually got these systems up to about uh, 2.8 million connections. Um, since that time, we've, we've added features. We've, so we've added encryption. We've added 
just kind of features into the protocol uh, that make it uh, a better user experience. Uh, and then our users have gotten a lot more active. So, you know, whereas a user would send, I don't, know, I don't know what the actual numbers are, but, you know, if there are 20 messages a day back then, there's 40 messages a day today. So per user, we're getting a lot more activity through the system. So our, our, the limits of what we can do on our, our current hardware are more in this range, uh, whereas they used to be up, <clears throat> up closer to 3 million before. But again, again, you can see this follows the same shape as the, the CPU graph. And here's the actual work being done. So here's the, the, out, the packet rate, output packet rate. So you can see it gets a little choppy there at, at the top. Um, it's not noticeable to the users because, again, this is a, an asynchronous thing. So we're not doing real-time video on this, on, this, uh, on this particular application. But you can see that the, the graphs all match each other in terms of the scaling. Uh, one measure that we look at is the scheduler utilization. I'll talk a little bit, uh, well, I'll talk about it now. So the, the way the Erlang virtual machine works is it's one big process with uh, these schedulers, which are threads. Uh, and it's basically a scheduler on a scheduler. So each of these Erlang schedulers is uh, going to have those lightweight processes um, scheduled on top of them. Uh, so these... So, so the way that you, you can run it in different ways, the way we typically run it on these nodes is there's one scheduler per CPU thread. It's bound to that CPU thread. And then the, the Erlang process get uh, scheduled on top of them. So scheduler utilization is basically a measure of how, how often, uh, how much the scheduler it thinks it's running versus how much it's actually running. So if you had a lot of contention in the system, the scheduler would think it's running a lot, like 100%, but if you looked at the CPU utilization, it was only 50%. The rest of that 50% is time that the scheduler would like to run, but there's some sort of contention that's keeping it from running. Um, the nice thing you can see here is that this graph basically follows the shape of the CPU graph until we get to the very top there. You can see the schedulers are at 100%, so they want to run all the time. CPU was actually running about 90, 98, 99% of the time. But it's a pretty small delta there where, uh, where there's time being lost because of some sort of, of contention either in Erlang or in the kernel. Uh, so this has probably been one of the biggest things that, that we have really benefited from, being able to understand how these things would scale on these large boxes. Uh, th these are some of the system stats while it's running at this level. Uh, so you can see, you know, the uh, the total utilization is in the 98, 99% range. <clears throat> that breaks out to about 8% user time, about 8% system time, 12% interrupt time, and then just a teeny bit of idle there. Um, and you can see the the counts of the soft and hard interrupts, system calls, traps, uh, context switches. Um, So, um, so the hardware we run, uh, so, so we're at SoftLayer, uh, and we order bare metal hardware from them, which they rack and, and provision for us. Uh, we have a combination of 1U, 2U, 4U boxes, uh, dual socket, uh, IV bridge, 2690 V2. So we have a total of 40 CPU threads uh, for each of these systems. Uh, a, a network attachment, there's, uh, software gives us a, a, a front-end network, which is public-facing, and a back-end network, which is private uh, to our infrastructure. Each of those has uh, two NICs. 
uh, and we're primarily Giggy, IGB, um, uh, Nix, and we uh, we run lag on, on both the front and the back. So we have two gig out the front, two gig out the back, uh, and we have some boxes which are 10 gig IX Nix. Now I mentioned that we really load up on RAM. So our minimum RAM deployment is 64 gig, uh, but we have some of the database boxes that are now running 768, uh, which is which is close to the size of the disk. Um, and we do that because of the, the type of database we run, which I'll, I'll speak about in, in a minute. Uh, for, the, for, the, for the most part, we use SSDs. Uh, the only place where we don't is on the video servers where we need more storage than is economical on, on the current SSDs. Uh, so on most boxes, they'll just have one disk for home the OS and doing the logging. Uh, but on the sort of the things where we need to store... Um, and there'll only be either one or two disks on the database servers as well. Um, on the things where we need lots of storage for, say, storing profile photos or uh, the, the multimedia servers, offline storage, that's where we'll, we'll load them up with either six drives uh, directly attached to the motherboard or 12 drives attached by either Adaptech or LSI. But we run everything JBOD. Um, we don't use any of the... Uh, the RAID on the controllers themselves. Uh, our software platform, uh, we're running uh, various versions of FreeBSD 9. Uh, we use UFS everywhere. Uh, and I mentioned we don't use the RAID components, uh, hardware components. On the video servers, we use Gmir on those 12 drives. So we've got, so we end up with six uh, mirrored drives um, to just give us a little more reliability on, on those. Really, our, our hardware problems. Are, stem from hard drive failures and uh, RAM, uh, RAM stick failures. Uh, we don't, that, that middle section, the SSDs are super reliable for us, so it's one of the two, it's one of those two things that we deal with on a, on a hardware failure basis. Um, we're starting to evaluate uh, 10.1, uh, but uh, one, another thought that I had when we were in the circle was that uh, almost every time, every time in my past where I've been uh, in a job and thinking about what the OS provides, I've always been thinking, well, I've always been looking to the next version. Like, well, we need this. We'll cook, it'd be great if we could go to the next version. If we need this. It'd be great if we could. This is like the first time that you know that we've been running on nine for um, almost two years now, and. The, the, that hasn't like entered into the equation. It's like, oh, I can't wait for ten because we need X. It's just it's it's been working so well for us that uh, there hasn't really been a need to, to move forward yet. Uh, but but we also like to stay kind of up to date with you know the current development that's going on. So so we are starting to look at at ten. And Jan has the thing about point oh releases. So we always wait for point one before we start looking at something. Uh, Rightfully so. Um, so as I mentioned, we use Erlang. Uh, we're on R16, which is one level. So there, are R17 is the is the current one. But we have a, a pretty extensive patch set that has addressed some of the contention issues that we found at the Erlang level. Uh, we run uh, we run Erlang at real time priority. Um, and I'm not I was, when I was, I was writing this, I'm I'm thinking that I'm not sure that we actually need to do that anymore. But this is something we started doing back in 2011 because uh, the system was a little more brittle back then. Uh, so if there was um, some sort of perturbation that 
kind of kicked one of the, the Erlang VMs so it couldn't run for a while. Uh, the, you know, the system could get into a state and into a degenerate state pretty quickly. Uh, it's a lot. It's a lot more flexible now. So I'm not even sure that this is strictly necessary, but but that's the way we run it in general. Um, like I said, our, our patches address specific uh, issues we found in in, in off the shelf. Um, Erlang has great support for FreeBSD. Uh, as I mentioned, it's, it's very SMP aware. Uh, but even on top of that, we've I don't think it anticipates the kind of scale that we're at where uh, you know, it, 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 I, I don't think that it necessarily tested on as big a boxes, but certainly not as large a number of processes and, and large RAM and things of that nature. So those are the kind of things that we've identified. Uh, I mentioned the schedulers get bound to CPUs. Spent a lot of time in 2011 uh, tuning the Erlang allocators so that the chunks that, would, that we'd end up with using were uh, gave us the best um, the the best percentage of pages getting promoted to super pages, as you can imagine, that's uh, fairly important when we have a box with uh, half a terabyte or 768 gigs in it. Uh, we use Yaws, which is one of a, a handful of uh, Erlang-based web servers. Uh, we can't use SendFile because of uh, the way it interact kind of interacts with the the uh, the Erlang runtime system uh, at the scale that we're at uh, we need to be able to uh, schedule lots of I.O. simultaneously across a small number of threads so uh, it's not the right model but it works out for us even without that. We use stud for SSL termination because the Erlang SSL implementation isn't super great I mean it works but it doesn't scale to, to what we need um, so we run stud on the same box as the Erlang VM, and then we use uh, loopback to, to proxy the connections back. For data storage, uh, we ex use, uh, extensively use uh, Erlang's Amnesia database, which is a distributed NoSQL-like um, uh, database. We, that's where we store like account data, group membership, those kinds of things. Uh, amnesia works best for us, at least, uh, when you keep everything in memory. So there's a big in-memory hash table, which is where all the all the database access is done. So all the reads, all the writes, and then Amnesia is is basically periodically dumping those those hash tables to disk, and it has a redo log that it's constantly writing for the for the persistence element, and then there and then it, it supports replication to multiple nodes for you know, uh, increased availability of the data. Uh, so, so Amnesia is where you see the, the large RAM boxes is, uh, again, because we're keeping everything in RAM. Uh, for, the, for the large storage systems, for the offline mailboxes, for the media and whatnot, um, our, our storage is super simple, just flat files on a hash directory tree. Uh, as I mentioned, we use JBOD. Um, we don't we don't strike for anything. Uh, there's basically you know uh, one set of hashers on on drive one, drive two, drive three, drive four, and we lay out the file system like we tune it per workload. So our mail our offline mailboxes are this big, so block size is this big, frag size is this big. Whereas you know the video servers are going to be a lot uh, bigger, and the image servers are in between. This is uh, a sample of metrics on uh, one of the offline storage boxes. So you're seeing one drive here. So 
on OneDrive, kind of running at peak, it's doing 9,000 writes a second to one of the drives. So <laughs> multiply that by six for that machine and multiply that by 32 to get the, the total write rate uh, for, for all the offline messages. Um, we've, what we found, and Kirk helped us with this um, a while back, trying to figure out, like, is, is there anything more that we can get out of these boxes? But what we found is, you know, because we're doing this 24 hours a day, uh, that, that what the drives were using, uh, basically once we got to about 45 to 50 megs of write per second, that's all that the drives could do. So they, uh, you know, they could do that all day long, but they can't do any more than that. Uh, at that constant rate, at the size that we're that we're doing, and you see the reads are, is pretty low. So most of the offline storage is uh, pretty pretty transient. Like I said, it's it's only during the time between somebody sends a message, uh, we send a push notification, that phone wakes up, connects, grabs the message. So uh, half of the messages get delivered uh, in the first, I think, twenty five seconds. Um, so it, so for the most part. A lot of the writing we're doing is just for persistence, and it never actually ends up coming back off the disk uh, because it's delivered long before uh, it gets flushed out of either the application level. We have an application level cache, and then there's the the caching in the the OS itself. Um, In terms of uh, so going back to some more history, so we were on seven in 2009, 2010, and Worked well. There were a few bugs, uh, but uh, our scale was smaller at that point, so it was easier to deal with. Uh, FreeBSD 8 is when I came on board, and it was better. Uh, one of the first things I had to look at was, uh, so one of the features of Erlang is that this, this message passing is transparent across a cluster. So if I have a PID handle, I can send a message to a process, and it gets delivered to the process wherever it is on, on, uh, on, on this node, on a different node on the same server, on a different node on a different server. And that all gets routed over this distribution network, which is this big mesh of TCP connections between all the nodes. Uh, and so the problem they were having when I showed up was occasionally these, these disconnections would disconnect because they'd get a message and they'd try to deserialize it and it would be junk. Uh, and long story short, it, it turned out that the, the message was being corrupted between the time it was written to the socket and it was going out the NIC. Uh, and so when we turned off zero copy sockets, that solved that problem, and um, we never looked back. So a lot of these things we sort of solved and then move on and don't worry about coming back to. Uh, we had a few problems with, I think, Nick lockups or something with the IGB, and I, I, I don't remember back, but I think I backported the, the FreeBSD 9 version or something like that, and it, it took care of that. And then we were also looking in terms of, you know, when we were tuning the system, on our particular hardware, the kernel was refusing to use the TSC for the time source, uh, so there was a little patch in there to force it to to do that um, because it was it was this, the time. It, but the TSC was was stable. It just for whatever reason it wasn't being detected as so. Um, and I mentioned that we got to about almost three million connections per <coughs> server in those days. Uh, we started on to nine in 2013, and it's like I said, it's has we we haven't been looking for the next version because it's been really great. Um, very very rare panics. I can't remember what the last one was. Um, I mean, we do get panics, but almost they're almost always either uncorrectable machine check or uh, or it's uh, a panic in UFS because uh, of a previous crash and that that corrupted the. Um, 
the file system. Um, but as far as just random things out of nowhere that we don't know about, uh, almost never. Um, we've worked on a couple enhancements. Uh, so in these systems that have these big hash directory trees, um, uh, we'd like to be able to cache the whole working set for the directory. And so that exceeds two gigs in some cases. So we've um, cranked up that the, the dir hash size and then been playing a little bit with increasing the max TCP retransmit interval so that we can survive. So, so a lot of our out, most of our outage time this year has been due to losses, uh, problems with the back end network. Um, and those outages last between 30 and 90 seconds. And when they go out to about 90 seconds, some of those, those disconnections disconnect because it, because of the, um, because of the caps on, on the retransmit interval. So, we want to. We've been playing with bumping those up a little bit just to try to get us past that 90-second barrier, which will um, allow us to stay connected longer, which is what we'd like. Um, how am I doing on time? I'm, what time do you want me to? You want me to keep rolling, or? You can uh, take questions or keep going. Okay, I'll just I'll just run through this tuning stuff real quick. So. Um, we don't do much in terms of the kernel config. We just uh, it's kind of an o- it's kind of a yawn OCD thing. We take out everything that we don't need and uh, uh, put in um, uh, the debugging and tracing stuff. Um, just a few t- uh, tunables in the in the loader conf. Um, uh, one, one, one thing that we discovered not too long ago was that the auto tune for the buffer cache on our large memory systems was allocating the. 12 or 18 gig or something for the buffer cache, which was ridiculously larger than we needed. So, uh, so and it was all this wired memory that we were able to get back by just forcing the the countdown. Um, then we obviously crank up the number of files, number of files per proc, and processes, and then widen out the TCP hash tables uh, pretty wide. And then we also limit the try to crank down the host cache to basically disable it as much as we can because. Uh, you know, at forty, or, or, you know, each of these servers is getting three, thirty-five hundred to four thousand connections a second. Uh, so, it's never going to see a connection that it knows that, that it, it, you know, the, the connections when they come back are long gone out of the cache. So it's just uh, time spent for no reason. Um, we crank up capacity on MBUFs and sockets, but we don't, we don't run into issues there. It just works. Um, I mentioned that we crank, we, we patched it so that we can have a larger dir hash for UFS. Um, we played a little bit. So going back to those offline storage, so I spent a lot of time sort of the end of 2011 um, trying to figure out how can we keep, how, how can we lower the write rates on those SSDs for the offline storage? And we knew that, you know, uh, somebody will come and fetch that mailbox pretty shortly after it's written. Uh, so ideally, we'd be able to just kind of have that, we'd rewrite it into the, uh, we write it into the file scripter, and it would just kind of hang around until, you know, for the next 20, 30 seconds. And if they came along and read it, great, and we can delete it, and never goes to disk. The problem we have is, um, and and I, I remember struggling with this at Yahoo too with the user database. Um, as we cranked up the dirty buffer limits and tried to widen out, uh, trying to lengthen out the sync delays, the syncer just gets really bursty. So it'll be a long period of time where there's nothing going to the drive, and then boom, it's uh, you know completely saturating the drive, and then we go back to 
not, not, not doing much at all. So the overall performance ended up being less because there was this period of time where it wasn't driving the, the drives at all. So we ended up just going back to the defaults, which basically means everything that we write to the file descriptor ends up getting written to the drive, and then just using that uh, that application layer cache to to take care of the the the, the read problem. Uh, so issues, um, I mentioned that uh, we deal with uh, panics in the case of filing system inconsistencies, but we just we just kind of deal with it basically after a crash. When the system comes back up, and this is because soft updates doesn't save us uh, from write caching on the drives, uh, which we which we need uh, to get the performance. So uh, after after coming back up after our first crash, uh, we let FSCK do its quickie soft updates thing, um, and then we just start running. And hopefully we're okay. Hopefully there's there's nothing wrong with the uh, the file system. If we crash again, the second time we come up, then we do a full FSCK in parallel on all the drives. And I don't know if this, I don't think this has happened recently, but we, it used to be the case that sometimes when we'd run the parallel FSCK, it would panic again. So our third time we came up, we'd, we'd, uh, we'd run them sequentially, which for some of these could take hours, which is why we sort of shortcut it, you know, try to do the minimum that we can to keep the system running. Uh, I mentioned the bursty sinker behavior. Uh, I also mentioned that the Erlang VM is one big process with all these threads in it. Well, it's not actually not that many threads. I mean, there's there's one scheduler thread per uh, uh, per CPU thread, and then there's we typically run with 29 async threads, which happens to be the magic number uh, for best performance. Um, so there's actually not that many threads. But on these systems where we're doing lots of uh, reads and writes from files. Uh, there's one file descriptor table, and we get a lot of contention there. So we have to make sure on those applications that we open and close files as little as possible. So you know, we'll open the file, we'll stat it, we'll read it, we'll trunk it, we'll write it, we'll do whatever we can do before we close it, rather than uh, rather than trying to open or close it multiple times. For that case, uh, we've only just started looking at PCB table contention problems because we're trying to scale up a server that has that stud-terminated SSL on it, which means that for every socket coming in, there's another two sockets on that, on that loopback between the proxy and the, and the application. So, so if we're trying to support 1.5 million coming in, that ends up blowing up to 4.5 million sockets. Uh, and so we've, had, we've run into problems with, uh, but, well, with, with, the, uh, with the interrupt handlers, Competing with the net ISRs, which I guess are doing some of the loopback traffic with the application itself, and there's some there's some degenerate problems there that uh, where the system kind of tips over uh, that we've been trying to to figure out. Um, but that's really it. And like I said, uh, in, in all, and this last one could just be solved by not being so aggressive on how many connections we we're trying to put on these boxes. Um, that's just that's not interesting. Uh, so our wish list isn't big. Um, you know, I think, you know, being, being a mobile app, uh, I think, well, multipath TCP will be interesting for us for two reasons. I think it, it'll probably become more and more interesting on the uh, smartphone platforms and give us better capability to stay connected to the phones uh, as they're managing their multiple uh, wireless connections. 
Uh, it's also interesting to us on the uh, in the server cluster itself because, as I mentioned, we're dual connected on the, there's a front end network and back end network, but the machines are also can talk to each other on either of them. And uh, it would be nice if we could actually run those distribution channels uh, over both networks and have that reliability uh, through the fact that that we actually can run, use both networks simultaneously. We've been trying to. We've been trying to do that sort of the application level. We've been trying to do it at the routing level. Um, haven't been successful doing that, uh, but that's one case where that, that might help us out. Uh, and then faster, large RAM boot. You know, some of these boxes, when we boot them, even if we're watching the console, they'll sit there and sit there and sit there, and there's no, there's no progress bar, so we don't know how far along they are. But that, that's kind of a I want a pony kind of thing. loader.com tunable to disable the test. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. All right, we'll take a look at that. Like I mentioned, I, it's, pro it's probably something to disable because we never find the errors when it's booting. We only find the errors when it's running and it, and it craps out. But um, anyway, uh, hopefully that was interesting. I'll take questions for whatever time I have. Yeah. So currently, we only have one. We only support one endpoint. Okay. So your phone is source of truth. So that's your presence. Yeah. Do you actually do encryption on those uh, chat boxes, or do you have some SSL terminators? Uh, so the, yeah, the encryption on the chat boxes is done on the chat boxes. It's uh, it's a um, it's a proprietary. I mean, it's it's AES, but I mean, it's our own. Um, we we optimized originally. We were gonna, we started with SSL, but we wanted to eliminate as many round trips as we could. And because of the fact that we had control of both ends of the of the connection, we went for something more optimized. But it is it's done on those chat systems. Yeah. We're using for uh, configuration management of the clusters. Configuration management of the clusters. Um, <laughs> Make. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, we don't have that many types of servers, and uh, you know, despite the fact that we have a gigantic user count, we still don't have a very big node count per engineer. And you know, a lot of these are identical, and so we haven't we haven't we haven't found the need to automate that yet. So it's, it's actually just a make and manual operations at this point. Yeah? This may be a question you don't want to answer, but how much do you have to deal with national security letter, lawful intercept kind of stuff? Um, I can't, well, I, I can't answer that both because I, if I knew the answer, I couldn't answer it probably, or they wouldn't want me to answer it, but I don't know the answer. Um, I'm. I'm a technical. I'm a technical guy. I don't deal with the policy stuff. So, someone else's problem is the correct answer. Yeah, exactly. So, all the LM packets have you open sourced it or is available I'm sorry, which? The Erlang packs. Yeah, yeah. There, it's on. It's on. I. It's on my Git repo, basically. Um, Redar. Anything else? Yeah. Uh, have you guys tried selling some of these solutions to Facebook? <laughs> <laughs> yes, in fact, they bought them. <laughs> uh, 
testing, do you try to uh, engage 1% of your users to put some test improvements, or do you have some kind of a test farm where you can actually simulate some notion of structure you have on the production boxes? Um, we do. We do a little bit of uh, so. The question is how do how do we test new features and so on? Uh, we do a little bit of A/B testing, but it's not very. Uh, we, we don't have a big framework for doing that. Um, m mostly, we just kind of go live with stuff. Um, you know, we've got a lot of, and we won't if if it's a major change, we we won't push it everywhere. We'll put it on. You know, if we have an optimization on something, we'll throw it onto one chat server and see what happens and that's only taking one you know half a percent of the traffic um, and it's easy to it's easy to kill it and, and shift that traffic if if it causes a problem uh, the problem is, is so when I first started we had like a whole test harness it died I'll just hold it hang on um, hello hello Move, move, move to a different location. Uh, testing. There you go. Hello? Use this. All right. Turn that on. Hello? Okay, that worked. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's the cone of silence. Hello? <laughs> Speak up. I'll just talk loud. Um, <clears throat> what was the question? <laughs> Testing. Uh, so when I started, we had sort of a test harness where we'd throw, you know, we'd spin up a bunch of AWS instances and throw traffic at the site. And, uh, you know, even back in 2011, we quickly outgrew the ability to throw enough traffic at the system to, to test it the way we, we need to do it. So on some of these systems, we'll do kind of T-testing where we'll say, especially on, say, offline. I spent a lot of time optimizing offline because it was a big pain point. Uh, you know, back in those days, we'd have, you know, outages every once in a while. And when the big pain point was, you know, these messages get queued up and then we let, let traffic back into the system, um, it would just it, destroy the offline system because there's so this flood of messages coming in. Uh, so it, it finally occurred that we, we were never going to be able to test it and give it the right traffic mix in a sort of synthetic way. So, so really, we, we moved to a model of... of either testing it live or testing it in parallel with geez, uh, testing it in parallel with, with sort of t-testing um, so especially for offline you know when we throw things to the the production offline servers we throw them to some test servers and then we could we could really play around with it so that that's that's primarily the way we do it these days just because it's so hard to simulate you know the mix of a million messages and how many of those are media and uh, you know how fa how quickly are the presence transitions and just just all the different intricacies of what actually causes load on the system. Yeah. You mentioned network problems. Where are the problems on business or switching layer? Uh, the the network problems were not were not were not <laughs> in the in the network infrastructure. So up, upstream of all of the servers. Um, with a, aside from those uh, occasional IGB problems we had back in 2011, the, the network's been totally not an issue for us. Yeah, in the back. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the tools you use to do performance analysis of the cluster, and are there uh, 
things in that area that make your job easier? Um, so, it so the question is, what, what kind of uh, performance tools do we use? Uh, so last time, so I did a lot of that back in 2011, and uh, there was a certain amount that we did at the OS level, primarily through, um, uh, through PMC was, was a big one. Um, and then inside Erlang, there's, there's, uh, there's too many different ways to profile Erlang. Uh, so we end up using fprof in there. Um, you know, a lot of times the the problems that we're running into actually show up in top. You know, in the weight channel uh, when we when we get these things really loaded up and we're trying to figure out what the problem is. It's a pretty like, for instance, the file descriptor table thing. Um, it was pretty obvious when on those on those particular machines. Hello. On those particular machines, what the problem was, because you'd see a bunch of things get get stopped in that in that particular piece of code, and there aren't many places it locks. Yeah. Have you looked at using the polling feature to reduce interrupts from the network card? I'm trying to remember. I think. I think we did experiment with that, but it wasn't conclusive. So, uh, but it's it's worth revisiting for sure. Yeah. What methods do you use to spread the connection or load across the infrastructure? Like the uh, we we DNS. And so the 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 load gets distributed by DNS basically. Uh, so we have we have thirteen machines in each of sixteen different DNS names, and they just get rotated by the resolvers. Um, MMS, we actually load balance internally because we know when somebody's going to send, we can assign them to a machine. Um, okay, one more. Yeah. So was, was everyone your secret sauce right away after you started? Or was it something that you guys went great to was you interested in card with users? Well, no. So, so they started with Erlang um, from the beginning, and that was before my time. Um, Primarily because it was uh, they needed a they wanted an open source XMPP server and it turned out that the Erlang one made sense. Now, uh, and I and I think there was thought to some thought to well this is a you know this is kind of a telephony project uh, um, uh, system right we're we're trying to replace SMS so you know this Erlang thing from the the telecom world seems like a good fit and. Uh, I think by the time I got there, it was, you know, it, it took me, it didn't take me very long to, even though it was a strange thing that that I was actually, like, you know, people wanted to use it at Yahoo, and I was kind of like, it didn't, you know, we don't need a, yet another language. But uh, it didn't take very long for, for me once I got to WhatsApp to realize that that was really, really powerful. And one of the things I haven't mentioned about that worked well for us is basically being able to do nonstop, you know, do hot code loading. Is a huge win for us because, uh, you know, our system our our systems have been completely down only once in the last three years, which is right after the Facebook announcement. But, <laughs> um, but every other t you know we can we can upgrade these systems while they're running with millions of people on them running at full speed, and it and it just makes our lives so much easier. And then with that, I I think I've burned up enough time. All right, thanks a lot. All right, thank you.
If you'd like to leave comments on the website or reach the show archives, you can find them at bsdtalk.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to send me an email, you can reach me at bitgeist at yahoo.com. That's B-I-T-G-E-I-S-T at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. This has been BSD Talk number 250.